Um, you know, I try not to, uh, you have to be very careful when, when things are volatile and there's a lot of interesting current events um, to not just like go right, you know, change what you're preaching that week and <laughs> get into some controversy you don't really have a, a time to look into. So this is actually like a, one, this is one of those sermons that's like a delayed response. I'm actually responding to things that occurred like a month ago, but it seemed like a good time. I've had time to pray and calm down. And so the next three weeks, we're actually going to be talking about uh, reconciliation. What is reconciliation? What is that? We hear an awful lot about it these days. And um, come to find out, Paul, one of the apostles, has uh, quite a lot to say about reconciliation. He has an entire theology of reconciliation. And I thought, you know, it's probably a good time for us to brush up on that. So the text today is Romans chapter 5. Romans chapter 5, I'm going to be specifically looking at verses 10 through 11 this week. Uh, We're actually for three weeks going to do this. We're going to talk about reconciliation in a big picture sense. Then we're going to talk about racial, ethnic reconciliation um, from 1 Corinthians. And then the third week, we're going to talk about what it means, therefore, because of the two ideas that I've already covered, what it means to have a ministry of reconciliation. But Romans chapter 5, verse 10 and 11 And before we begin, let us together pray. Father, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you that you have gone before us and that you have thought of everything already. We pray, Lord God, that as we are confused and um, presented with uh, current events and life situations and ideas and frustrations, as we're presented with life and, and in all of its uncertainty, I pray, God, that we would turn to you that we would lay hold of your word, that we would open it, that we would do the difficult work of studying to understand it, that we would cry out to you, that we would, by the Holy Spirit, come um, into a deeper understanding and grow up in maturity. I know that what we're talking about today is difficult, more difficult even than um, usual, because it's so raw, and I pray that you would give us peace and patience and wisdom and understanding as we open your word and hear from you. What As difficult as it may be to hear, Lord God, give us ears to hear it. And amen. Oh man, what's he going to (laughs) say? The recent unrest, not only in the United States, but around the world, has highlighted the need for reconciliation. The problem is who's defining reconciliation? Does anyone, all right, I I think it's quite easy to convince us that we need some reconciliation, but what is it? And, And where do we look? Uh, to figure it out. If you go to the Stanford Encyclopedia of Philosophy, which is a website that's hard for me to stay off of, I love it, there's a great deal to be said about reconciliation there, Uh, even helpful things. But who defines what reconciliation is for us, the church? As morality declines, one of the things that happens when morality declines is that the state gets more repressive. It has to. If people aren't going to control themselves, someone has to control them. This is why you have governments. And so what ends up happening is as the morality (laughs) increases, the repressiveness increases, right? It's no wonder that uh, the State Department or the Defense Department comes back from Iraq and has a bunch of extra armored tanks. And my goodness, my gracious, they need those in Minneapolis. So they send them there for free. Did anyone wonder what happened to all those (laughs) armored vehicles and and body armor and helmets. Well, they, they're like, they have a program where they give it to the police department. Why does our police department need those things? 
One might argue that they need them because, I mean, look around. Right? It's crazy out there. Cries for justice and change have turned into cries of racial reconciliation, cries of systemic racism, of white privilege. Is there a systemic problem in policing? Is there a systemic problem in race relations? Is there a systemic problem in the justice system? Is that true? Yes. I would say there are systemic problems to the left, to the right, to the center. But is it that, that there is such a thing as white privilege? Is it such a thing as inherent racism that you don't even, um, you don't even know you have? You just have it. <laughs> I, I, when I was at King County District Court, I worked there for three years, and I was on the, um, uh, the what is it, the justice, social justice committee. I was on that. I sat on that. And in our first meeting, there was a shell that we got to hand around, and, and, and we got to talk about how races has affected our lives. Um, right, and, and there we all are having this very kumbaya moment. And I explained how my father had been passed over for a promotion because of um, affirmative action. That didn't go very well. Right? There is a way that the world is having this conversation, and unless you fall in line with the way that they're having it, they don't really want to hear from us. Uh, I mean, I'm looking around this room as a white man, looking at predominantly white people, and we're about to talk about racial reconciliation. And there are a great number of people who would think that is just so far out of bounds that it's absurd. And this is the environment in which we are trying to have this important dialogue. Now, I want to talk for a moment about Marxist ideology. There are cries for, for justice going around, and, and we understand why. We understand there are systemic problems. Because the things that we're talking about involve men and women and sinners. Because sin is the systemic problem that we're dealing with. So in the midst of all of these real cries for real justice that are legitimate, there is an ideology that's using it for its own purposes. It's taking advantage of the situation to push for a revolution. The problem is Marxism, this economic political theory, that the haves are oppressing the have-nots, the bourgeoisie must be toppled and the workers must be ennobled and empowered. Right? This is the old story. There is this economic disparity between those who have money and those who don't have money, and so what we need to do is overthrow all the people who have money and give it to all the people who don't have money. And like, let's just go back to the USSR and see how that worked out. Now what you have, is the modern form of this is racial rather than financial. Certain races have all the money, all the opportunity, all the power, all the privilege, and they must be toppled. And the oppressed races must be ennobled and empowered. So instead of it being purely financial, it's now ethnic. Ethnic Marxism. It's a framework for understanding both history and the current socioeconomic disparities that we see around us. This social Marxism implores us to see that race is everything. It's the only thing. All disparities come down to that. The social ill of our day is caused by the new bourgeoisie, white people. And it was suggested to me earlier this week by a Jewish friend that I'm simply concerned about this because I'm afraid now, because I'm about to be toppled. That was, that was the suggestion. That I'm simply, right, people in power who are about to lose their power should be afraid. That's why you're reacting this way. You have no legitimate anything to say about this. 
I've known him since we were 14, so I let him get away with that statement. This is the epicenter of the commie revolution in America. And frankly, I think we should bring that word back. What we are seeing is a commie revolution. It's hijacking the real and justified outrage over the death of George Floyd. Like, George Floyd, you want to have a conversation about what happened with George Floyd? Let's talk about police arbitration. Right? This is the conversation I have with my Jewish friend. He has no idea what I'm talking about. Does anyone know what policing arbitration is? How about qualified immunity? Qualified immunity means that, well, you know, they get police officers get special protections in court. Now, my father was a policeman for 32 years. There's a great deal, right? They should be able to be protected from litigation that's erroneous. I remember there was a man who sued my father. Uh, yeah, he was standing in a parking spot. You're not allowed to do that. So my dad just parks in the parking spot. The guy throws himself down, acts like he's hurt. And it took on, like, what, six years. They sued, he sued us. He sued the state. He sued the city. He sued it, right? Someone had to protect my father from that nonsense. So I understand that police need this kind of thing. But what's baffling to me is that nobody actually wants to talk about the things that really need to change in policing. Why do they have such powerful unions? Why does a guy get fired five times? Or why does a guy kill someone and he's convicted of a crime as a police officer and still get his pension? Okay, there are real issues there. I want to make it quite clear where I come down on those things. But this whole thing is getting hijacked by commies. <laughs> it's true. We are seeing the ascendance of revolutionaries, not reformers. The more this view takes hold of the American consciousness, the more it informs our political and cultural aspirations. Iconoclasm now, this is a whole other thing, is the destruction of icons and other images or monuments as representations of the predominant traditions and values of a society. Therefore, if you destroy a statue of George Washington, you are destroying the society and the culture of the people who venerate someone like George Washington. It's called iconoclasm. Now, I'm all for iconoclasm. Uh, during the Reformation, I wish I could have been there for that, right? You go in and you just strip churches bare. That was the idea. That was what the Protestants liked to do. You happen to get a lot of gold out of that. I mean, I'm sure that wasn't their motivation. But this is what happens. When you have one group overthrow another group, generally the first thing you want to start doing is tearing down all the images that's going to remind everybody of the traditions and history of those people. The current iconoclasm seeks to tear down the symbols that represent the social Marxist framework that I described earlier. Anything from the history of America, because America is systemically racist, this is the framework by which these extremists understand everything. Everything that's racist has got to go. One of the root problems at the, this is one of the root problems at the foundation of this ideology, popular in movements like the BLM movement. Now I'm going to talk about this for a moment because I love these. I love this. Who came up with this marketing scheme? It's like Joe Levy came up with this marketing scheme. Black, Black Lives Matter. Who could be against that? That's the best name you could have ever given this thing. Because Right? You're inherently racist, bam, as soon as you start asking questions. You go onto their webpage and you look up what they believe and you see that they're opposed to, uh, what is it, cisgender oppression or, no, cisgendered, what was it? Um, I was, my wife and I were talking about this. Does anyone know what cisgender means? It means that your gender is based on the sex that God gave you. I mean, that is just such a radical idea. Right? And, 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 <laughs> There's cisgender privilege that has got to go. This is what BLM stands for. They don't like the Western nuclear family. Now, everyone just take a moment and think about what that means. The Western nuclear family. 
But then you say innocently, but don't all lives matter? You racist. How dare you? Um, I, cisgen- like, I don't know. I, I'm a Christian. I can't support this because it's opposed to the word of God. Well, oh, you don't like black people? Right? This is the conversation. It's brilliant. Frankly, it's brilliant. We've been outmaneuvered as we usually are <laughs> uh, right at the get-go here. Because who's going to be a pro- It's like being pro-choice. So what are you, anti-choice? We've really got to talk to the PR department for Christianity. It's- there is nothing wrong with the concept that black lives matter. Of course they do. It's what I'm going to start chanting when I go down to, to Planned Parenthood. Because that's where majority of the black people in this country die. So black lives do matter. I'm for it. Black on black crime, police killing black people, I'm for it. Let's do it. What I'm not for is Marxist revolution. And what, I, what, what really hurts my heart are the people who really legitimately are upset by what's going on, who are going out and are getting caught up in the wrong things, and they're being manipulated. Mobs are easily manipulated, though. This is what I'm talking about here. This is just, right? Wisdom is justified by her children, the word of God says. The monument of the 54th Massachusetts Regiment was defaced with vitriolic vengeance. Right? They actually wrote BLM on the monument for the 54th Massachusetts Regiment. It's a giant statue. It's beautiful. I've seen it. The problem is, the monument is to an all-black unit popularized in the great movie Glory. If you haven't seen it, you should see it. Who helped fight the South in an effort to end slavery. Okay? A monument honoring all-black troops Fighting slavery was defaced as a symbol of America's racist past. Now, I'm not the smartest guy in the world, but I am a little confused. This from a news article. During chaos at the Wisconsin State Capitol Tuesday night, protesters tore down two statues that have stood in front of the State House for decades, including one memorializing a Wisconsin abolitionist who died trying to end slavery during the Civil War. This is madness, right? I think any reasonable person should come out of hiding and say it's madness. I'm not saying you have to post that on Facebook. It's not worth it. But this is madness, and we have to call it what it is. This isn't a principled, well-informed movement to right injustices. It's a revolutionary mob. And there are truly grieving people who are really crying for justice and racial reconciliation. Who is going to offer something meaningful and truly cleansing and truly hopeful to those people? That's what I'd like to know. Right? We're all watching this happen. Who is going to stand up and give these people who are so desperate for some, right? It's like Jesus said. He looks around and they're just sheep without a shepherd. Racial reconciliation is necessary because men are sinners. We sin against one another. Tribes sin against other tribes. Nations sin against other nations. Citizens commit injustices against other citizens. And, yes, the state commits injustices against its citizens. There is nothing new under the sun. This is what I was talking about this morning. Part of what this is is we should not be surprised by injustice. We are dealing with human beings. This, this utopian idea that you're going to create a place where nothing bad ever happens where nobody ever, ever gets COVID, ever. Sorry, that's a, that's a thing for another day. I agree with the narrative that reconciliation is the clarion call of the day, but as an amateur historian, and especially as a pastor, I would testify that it is the clarion call of all peoples at all times. Reconciliation is the point. 
It doesn't matter what's going on in the nightly news. You wake up on any day that ends in Y, and the point that day is reconciliation. It means way more than people are saying it means. They have no idea what they're talking about. And what we have to do is push beyond the surface issues to get to the real issue at the heart of this. And that is reconciliation <laughs> is the framework by which we should understand not only our own lives, but, but the lives of our society, the life of our society. It's anecdotal, but I did work at the King County District Court for three years. And I, I can testify right now, justice has absolutely nothing to do with the American justice system. And I can tell you story after story after story of watching the kind of nonsense of people tearing down the 54th Massachusetts Regiment Monument in the name of racial equality. I saw that kind of madness left, right, and center. But the current Marxist ideology masked behind legitimate civil rights movement is perpetuating the very thing it claims to be seeking to destroy. Now, I really want to drive this point home because this is the introduction for three sermons I'm going to do on this. So I want to give you just two more examples, specifically with this word reconciliation. What do they mean when they say reconciliation? Here's two examples of what they mean. This one's for you, Byron and Shirley. Rye Morin, a member of the Red River Metis Indians and founding director of the National Center for the Truth and Reconciliation at the University of Manitoba, joined the University of Victoria last fall as the new, here we go, reconciliation librarian. A reconciliation librarian. I'm sorry. I don't mean, I'm sorry. I'm taking this seriously. He hopes his unique role will help Canadians better understand indigenous culture and what they have faced through history. Who could be against that? Oh my gosh. I can't, how could he possibly oppose that? His new role as an associate university librarian for reconciliation will involve collecting and showcasing indigenous history as well as promoting reconciliation within university departments and courses. Wait, what? So he's like a party commissar now who's going to help all right. During the Russian Revolution, they, in, in, in communist Russia, they had these officers who were outranked everybody else, and they were called commissars, and they were the morale officers. And they were supposed to report you if your morale, right, if your commie morale went down. So essentially what they would do is find anybody who isn't upholding the communist worldview, and they would report you, and you would get sent off to the Gulag Archipelago. That's what this sounds like to me. He's, going to not, he's not just sorting uh, you know, spear points that they found at a riverbank somewhere. He's going to go around the university now and make sure everybody's following along with truth and reconciliation. And here we go, right from the horse's mouth. In an interview, Moran said that Canada is a profoundly racist country. The origins of this country are built and founded upon racist ideas and notions, and that is the record we have to set straight. Oh, yippee. Right? I am glad he's on the job. Okay? Th this is what reconciliation looks like. You all are, sorry Canadians, all Canadians are racist because they're Canadians. It's like a super racist thing to say. Here we go, United States. Now, you want to talk, I, 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 injustices in the United States, let me, let me count the ways. But here's one that I don't think most people know about. June 19th, 1838, Jesuits, Jesuits, okay? They are a brotherhood within the Catholic Church. I don't usually like throwing shade at the Catholics, but this is a, a religious order. 
sold 272 slaves to plantations in Louisiana to fund Georgetown University. <laughs> what? <laughs> what? There are so many things wrong with that, I don't even know. But, you know, it goes on. It, con it continues. Student activists are seeking to implement a semesterly fee at Georgetown that would create a reconciliation fund, which would be presided over by a board of trustees, including five students and five descendants of what are known as the GU-272, the 272 slaves. 183 years ago, these slaves are sold, and now what they want to do is set up in perpetuity, without end, a fee at the, for every student at the university every semester to go into a fund for these five students, 10 students, five of them descendants, decide how to spend it. Now, that's called restitution, and that's a biblical idea. Again, we should get behind restitution. Uh, if I come into your store and I bust up a bunch of stuff, uh, part of what I should have to do is pay you back for the stuff I busted. If I break into your house and steal things, I should have to pay back the money for what I stole. Now, how do you figure out how much and who owes money to the descendants of these people from 183 years ago? This is why reparations is such a ridiculous idea. Who committed the sin? Where are they? Who have the sin committed against? Who do we pay the, and who pays it? But this is what they are calling reconciliation. A reconciliation fund. Right now, and this is what I'm saying. People are angry. People see these things, and something has got to be done about this. The question is what? What these two examples show us is that reconciliation is a crucial intellectual, historical, and ethical issue in our day. What it also shows us is that the world has no idea how to reconcile, but is only able to enact feeble symbols of virtue signaling. Poorly defined restitution or the racist idea that every Canadian in its history is racist because they are Canadians. This is, this is what they have to offer people. How is anyone going to get better with these two ideas? So what is, here we go, actual reconciliation? What is it? Because we're Christians. We're not, we're not defined by what we're against. We're defined by what we're for. So I'm not going to stop here because we're for something. And everything that I've described up till now, we are not for that. What we are for is what God says reconciliation is. Reconciliation means doing away of, with enmity. It means bridging over a quarrel. Quarrel. Enmity means being at war, the opposite of friendship. It means ill will. It means hatred. It means unfriendly dispositions. It means malevolence. I, don't, I didn't pronounce that word correctly. Sorry, Becky. God put enmity, warfare, between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent in Genesis chapter 3. At the very beginning, when man fell, God looks at all the characters in the story, he looks at the world, and he says, now what I'm going to do is, I, this, this is this has caused a war. There is now a war going on between my children and Satan's children. And enmity is the word that you use to describe that relationship. Romans chapter 8 says, the carnal mind is at enmity against God all the time. And reconciliation is dealing with enmity. So if there is a war, ending the war between the two parties is called reconciliation. You're bringing the warfare to an end. You're not simply trying to cover up one bad thing that happened. You're bringing the war to an end. <clears throat> right? You don't, two nations are at war with one another for five years. You don't come at them over one battle and sit down with the two parties and say, well, you know what, this city is going to go to group A. 
and then say that you've reconciled them because you haven't. The war is still going on. You're just dealing, you can't deal with one battle. You've got to deal with everything that's causing the war. Paul framed the ministry of Christ as propitiating the wrath of God, dealing with the wrath of God, turning away the wrath of God, and reconciling the enmity between God and man and man and man. Because we are at war with God. We are at war with one another. And it, it, what does not matter is ethnicity. Everyone in this world is at war with God and is at war with one another until he does something about it. As the Anglican bishop Welby said, inasmuch as prayer is about relationship upward towards God and evangelism and witness are about relationship outward toward other people, reconciliation stands naturally as the middle of these three since reconciliation is about our relationships with God and with each other. There are four important New Testament passages that treat of the work of Christ as reconciliation. That's how Paul defines what Jesus did. What we're going to talk about today is Romans chapter 5, verse 10, and Colossians chapter 1, verses 19 through 21. But next week, what we're going to look at is Ephesians 2.11, which explains the reconciliation of warring ethnic tribes, war resulting from the fall of Adam, and then the war between Cain and Abel, and then the Tower of Babel. You could see in Genesis, you see the warfare of men versus men, right in the very beginning of the story. Now, who brings that war to an end? Jesus does. And that's what we're going to look at next week. The last week, we're going to look at 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 18, explaining that reconciliation is now the ministry of the church. It's what Paul calls what we're doing in the world. Colossians chapter 1, verse 19 through 22. This is how Paul understands reconciliation. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And you, who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless above reproach before him. You were at enmity with God, and Jesus came and healed, covered over, reconciled that enmity. Bishop Welby said, it is therefore appropriate to ask, what is the meaning of reconciliation in the New Testament? What is the relation between the upward and outward dimensions of reconciliation? Reconciliation is at the very heart of Paul's theology of atonement. His theology of salvation is understood as reconciliation. The nations of men are seeking reconciliation. So this is my question. Oughtn't we to have something to say about it? Shouldn't we be people who stand up and say, oh, 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 you're looking for reconciliation. We know all about that. I love everybody. But here is yet another moment right now in our lives that shows that we are completely unprepared for the moment in which we have arrived. Now, if you want to repent of something, repent of that. Right? I was not there 183 years ago where our Jesuit brothers sold slaves, for goodness sakes, to fund a college. My goodness. I'm not going to apologize for that. I wasn't there. You know what I, what? You know what I will apologize for is that my neighbors and the community in which I live is clamoring for reconciliation, and I, even the pastor of the church, had to go look the word up. I wonder if they ever mentioned reconciliation in the Bible. Hmm. Curious thought experiment. Oh my goodness gracious! It's how they define Paul's theology of atonement. And this is what happens to us again and again and again. Oftentimes, we are just 
through our own failures. I, honestly, we are unprepared for the times that we are li- in living in. But these are the moments, these are the times in which that we were born in, and so we have to bone up and get ready for this conversation. Matthew 28, 18 through 20. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. It is not our responsibility to sit on the sidelines and watch this terror take place. It is our responsibility to teach the nations. It just so happens at the moment they actually want to know about this particular subject. Right? Passivity is not what we're called to. Teaching is what we're called to. Living as an example is what we're called to. Understanding what reconciliation looks like in our own marriages, in our own families, in our own households, in our own businesses, in our own communities is crucial if we're going to have anything to say about it to the world. Jesus reconciles all things. Jesus reconciles all things by the blood of his cross. That's it. There is no other reconciliation. I'm not going to give away an inch of ground on that. If you want reconciliation, there's one way. And it's, and it's bloody, and it's at the foot of Jesus' cross. Now this is what we're for. Let's turn to Romans. That was like an introduction that was as long as my life right now. I'm a little, I'm a little worked up. This is why I waited a month. Can you tell I've calmed down? Anyway. Romans is an essay letter. It's a lengthy instructional essay with a conventional epistolatory framework. It's not a letter like most people think. It's literally a giant essay that Paul wrote, and he slapped a dear you, uh, you know, from me at the end, and so people think it's a letter, but it's not. It's a giant essay. Romans is Paul's most comprehensive statement of the gospel. It's called Paul's Gospel. And it's his most comprehensive outline of Christian doctrine. John Calvin said that when anyone understands this epistle, he has the passage open to him to to the understanding of the whole scriptures. Now that's a pretty big statement. Calvin thought if you understand Romans, you understand the entire Bible. The theme of Romans is that the gospel is the revelation of God's righteousness, a righteousness that we can experience by faith. Now that is good news. Romans chapter chapter 1 verse 18 through chapter 4, verse 25, is the first section of Romans and explains that both Jews and Gentiles are helpless slaves of sin and cannot be brought into relationship with God or one another by anything that they might do. Only God can change this tragic state of affairs by making available through the sacrifice of his son a means of becoming righteous before God. This is justification. He has got to change the nature of our relationship with himself and with one another. This section is summarized, the beginning of Romans, in Romans chapter 3, verse 21 through 25. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift. Through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood, 
to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because, because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over our former sins. That's, that is the message at the beginning of Romans. The gospel is this. Everybody, does not matter what tribe, it does not matter what tongue, it does not matter what ethnicity, it does not matter what empire they live in, every single human being is unworthy and falls short of the glory of God. And unless he intervenes, he propitiates, he justifies, he cleanses, he interferes, there is no hope for us. In the second section, he begins to expand on this idea. He draws out the significance of this act of Jesus, both for future judgment and for the present earthly life. The force of Paul's argument up to this point is that all Jews and Gentiles alike are under the condemnation of God. And what is the condemnation of God? It's wrath. Romans chapter 1, verse 18. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and wickedness of men. God is not concerned with a single sin. He's not, he's not a single issue God. He is concerned with the wickedness in man's, men's hearts. All men. All women. All people. Everywhere. So, all people have fallen short. Have you ever told a lie? Have you ever um, coveted anything? Have you ever done anything? Okay, well, our God is so holy and so perfect that even if you've committed one sin, you, it says in the word of God, transgressed all of them. Nobody stands righteous before God. Nobody. Romans chapter 5, verse 9 through 10. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if... While we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. Much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. Paul writes that we have now been justified by his blood. Much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. The word wrath, of course, means the effects, the punishment, those sufferings with which the divine displeasure visits sin. Now, this is not, I think, you know, when you go down... <laughs> When you go down to buy Christmas cards, there's not going to be a section there where you're like, you know, give me the wrath cards. Give me the wrath cards. I want the, in, I want the Christmas card that says the reason for the incarnation is because somebody had to save us from God's wrath. Here's a picture of my family. Slap that on the fridge, baby. People don't like this idea, but God hates us apart from Jesus Christ. And he ought to. Because we're sinners and we're vile. And that is not a message that plays well in modern Christianity. But it's, this is what, right? We've got to bone up for this conversation. I don't care, right? I, this, we ought not to care. You, you go and you look at a video of a police officer committing a, some sort of injustice, or it appears like that. Sometimes it is, sometimes it isn't. Usually you've got to see the 20 minutes before and after of the thing they're showing on the night. I'm sorry, I'm get, again, I'm getting distracted. But the first thing that you have to recognize is this. I'm watching two sinners. These are two sinners. One is not inherently better than the other. One is currently doing an injustice that somebody has got to stop. Is somebody going to stop this? You're all going to stand there with your stupid phones. Which, by the way, I thought that was a crime to stand there watching someone else commit a crime. Anyway, I digress. The first thing you have to understand, no matter who we're talking about, is they're sinners. Okay? And they, there's not one sin that if you just deal with racism, magically this becomes a utopia. 
We are vile. You take racism away, and then you're like, oh, look, there's another one. Oh, look, you deal with that, and then there's another one. It's like weeds in my front yard. This is why I have kids. They, they, I, I never see weeds now because the six of them go out there and take care of them. But I remember. I remember what it was like. I would go out there and weed furiously. And that's what, right? You can't yank one sin out of somebody's heart and think you've dealt with the whole thing. And God sees the sin, and he hates the sin, and he hates the sinner. He does. He hates the sinner. There's this thing going around now where God, you know, hates sin but loves sinners. Well, that's a really confusing and I think unbiblical way to think about it. He hates sinners. That's why he's going to throw them in hell. This is why right? he's offering them a way to get out of his wrath, to get out from his bad side to his good side. You can't, look, I'm looking at you, and all I can do with you at the end is chuck you into a giant fire. Is that right? He hates them, and justly so, because they're sinners. Colossians chapter 3, verse 5 through 6. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, covetousness, covet, I can't, I can do that sin, I can't say that sin which is idolatry, on account, of these, the, on account of these, the wrath of God is coming. It's coming, people. The wrath of God is on its way like a train. You cannot stop it. Romans 1.18, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For the wrath of God is no evil passion or malice, and his righteousness is not a thirst for vengeance. The word enemies is applied to men not only as a descriptive of their moral character, but also of the relation in which they stand to God as the objects of his displeasure. There is not not only a wicked opposition of the sinner to God, but a holy opposition of God to the sinner. Okay, so before we're reconciled with him, right, before we're reconciled to him, he has to reconcile himself to us. Think about that for a moment. He's got to deal with his own wrath before he comes to us and, do, and, and, and deals with our enmity towards him. His enmity has to first be dealt with. By his propitiary sacrifice on the cross, Christ has brought us out of the state of enmity with God into friendship with God. God's wrath rests on sinners, but not on his friends. Being saved from God's wrath is called propitiation. Propitiation properly signifies the removal of wrath by the offering of a gift. The gift is Christ's pure atoning blood. Now this does, actually, when you really get down into the details of this, this really bothers a lot of people. So Jesus had to give presents to God the Father so that he wouldn't wrathfully destroy all of us? And there's something about that that sticks a little, right? Because we like to think of God as just, he's in heaven with the butterflies, in the field of daisies, thinking happy thoughts about us. It's like, man, those guys sure are great. I can't wait till my son gets back lets me know that they all believed him, and they're coming with him. It's going to be great. No, there's God the Father in heaven, waiting for the end of Jesus' ministry, when Jesus goes back into heaven and gives a gift to the Father, and it's his own blood, and God says, now I'm not mad at them anymore. Look at what you've done for them. You've poured this blood. This blood is now all over them. You've washed them with this blood. This is the blood that I love. Your life is in this blood. Anything that you put this blood on has eternal life in it. I love anything covered in this blood. On our honeymoon, we went and saw this. Uh, we went and saw Macbeth down at um, I don't know, wherever you see Shakespeare in Oregon, whatever that place is called. Thank you, Ashland. Thank you. 
And they, they did one of the best things I've ever seen in a play. And they, there's this giant pool of blood in the center of it. And they, and they didn't have swords. When they were fighting, they would kind of struggle for a while. And one guy would pick up a big handful of blood and slap the other guy with it. And the blood would just splatter all over everything. And I thought, man, that's cool. I also thought, that's horrifying. Yeah, I thought it was cool before I thought it was horrifying. But I was like, yeah, this is... This is there, it, between men... To settle the injustices, to settle the war, there is blood. And there is a lot of it. There will be blood no matter what we do. Someone is going to bleed and die for the sins that we have committed. And, and, and now transfer this idea to the church, right? He has washed us all in his blood. This is what we sing. This is what we talk about. But what does that actually mean? You're all sitting there and God the Father is looking at you and you're covered in Jesus' blood. And that's why he finds you to be objects that he approves of. There's no other reason. And he says, how could I, look at them, how could I be angry at them? I love them. And all he sees is Jesus' blood. Hebrews 9.22, indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood, and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Hebrews 9.12, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. He took the gift into heaven, and God said, I'm not mad at them anymore. To be justified is more than to be pardoned. It includes the idea of reconciliation. On account of our sins, we are indeed objects of God's wrath. Calvin writes, but because the Lord wills not to lose what is... But because the Lord wills not to lose what is his in us, but because the Lord wills not to lose what is his in us, out of his own kindness, he still finds something to love. Now, here is a mystery I'm not going to say much about because I don't understand it. He looks at us as objects of wrath. Why not just do away with us then? Right? In the very beginning, he looked at Adam and Eve and he looked at everything he created and he said, this is very good. And then we jacked it all up. And he's looking down and he's like, guys, this is vile. Look at what you've become. He's like, but you, I did make you. You are mine. And I don't want to leave you like this. He's, there's something in us that he sees is his that overcomes the wrath. And, that he, and, and for that, he sends his son to shed his blood. 1 John 4.19, we love because he first loved us. This expression exhibits the true ground of our acceptance with God. It is, not our, it is not what we have done. It's not even what he's doing in us now. It, there was a time, a moment, before any of us were even born, even thought of, where he decided that he, what he was going to do is reclaim us. He was unsatisfied with what had happened to us, and he wasn't going to let it stand. And, and right, I don't know if you, right, I, I understand all of us have different stories about how we've arrived in this particular location at this particular time, but I remember hating God. And I really did. We always say, don't get into stuff you're not ready for. I remember that cold hatred in my heart. 
I can't imagine what he saw there. And now here I am. Seems weird. When did the war stop? I wasn't doing very well, but... All I deserved was his wrath. And propitiation is turning that wrath away. Reconciliation is God establishing peace and friendship with us. See, these are two sides of one coin. Propitiation turns away the wrath. Reconciliation gives us peace and friendship. This is why Paul summarized the entire redemptive history in this idea. You're reconciled to God. You are no longer objects of wrath. You are his friends. Between you and him, there is peace. The original fellowship that Adam had enjoyed with God before the fall has been restored. We are now at peace with him. This is the consequence of what Jesus has done. Because Christ took our place in obeying the Father and in suffering for our sins, and because he appeased the wrath of God that stood against us, he removed all barriers to a restored friendship with him. We are now in harmony with God through the atoning work of Christ. Think about this. Christ loves you. Now, I I want you to think back just to this lesson. Can you think of a reason why? He looks at you and he's like, yeah, I won't. No, you know what? My son is going to die for them. Why would he possibly do that? If we look at our own lives, there's nothing at all. And when we turn to him and we cry out to him, what does he do? He hears us. He listens to us. He's concerned about the things that we say, the things that are happening to us. This is called reconciliation. And this is what the world is looking for. Right? They, they will come up with all kinds of ways that they think appease portions of this. But what they all need is to sit here with us and to look up at heaven and see the God that gives them peace. To know that there is nothing good in them, but everything good in Jesus. And it doesn't matter what they had done. It doesn't matter what they were thinking. It doesn't matter what was done to them. They will stand in the company of saints, looking up at Christ for eternity. They will be in the fellowship of the triune God. That's reconciliation. Now, how did that get hijacked? How did that lead, right? This is what they're looking for. Why are we tearing statues down? Charles Hodge summarizes verses 9 through 10 this way. While sinners, we are justified. While enemies, we are reconciled. Now, Romans chapter 5, verse 11. For more than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. The concluding idea of this section is once again of boasting. Because that, that's what it means. To rejoice there, it would actually be better if they translated, translated it in Romans chapter 5, verse 11, as boasting. More than that, we boast in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. The natural reaction to all that God has done for us through Christ is joy. Paul says here that God not only has saved us from his future wrath, but has also given us the joy of a present reconciliation. We, we understand this reconciliation isn't something that's coming someday far, 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 far in the future. We are reconciled now, and it ought to fill, fill us with boasting. Now, when's the last time you boasted about the fact you were reconciled? 
When's the last time you heard somebody right, griping on Facebook about reconciliation and you went on there and you're like, man, <laughs> that sounds terrible. I hope that you find peace with that. But I've been reconciled to God. Like, what is this nut? And that's the kind of craziness that Paul would do. He's like, I don't know what you guys are talking about, but I'm reconciled to God, baby. You guys need some reconciliation. We got reconciliation. But the world, right? They don't hear that on our lips, so they don't know where to go. Right? Nobody thinks, nobody's in their house right now going like, man, you know what we need is some reconciliation. I heard those fools down the street singing about that the other day. Let's go check that out. Right? Uh, <laughs> never catch people with these kinds of things, but what church's motto is, we ought, you know, be reconciled to God. That's Paul's message. But like, what if we have that a banner slapped on the front of the church? People drove by and were like, what? Why isn't that our message? Why isn't it a source of joy to us? And, and, and it's just because we don't understand it. You are covered in Christ's blood. All the wrath that you... That giant train that was going to come and pummel you is now not coming. It's coming to pick you up and take you to heaven. It's not going to roll over you. You're going to hop on. What joy we ought to feel at this. We hear the word reconciliation. See, this is what, I was reading this earlier this week and it caught me off guard. Jesus says in Matthew 28, lawlessness will increase, therefore the love of some will grow cold. Lawlessness will increase, so the love of some will grow cold. Think about that. Now, how many of you guys find yourselves in the midst of all the lawlessness that we see, feeling your love going cold? And I feel part, part of what's happening here is that we see this kind of stuff and we stand on our righteous indignation. And just like a bunch of other people, we're just as outraged. But lawlessness ought not to cause our love to grow cold. It ought to cause our love to increase. Our pity, our compassion, our understanding, our desire to want to get into the middle of something with somebody, to explain to them what they're really looking for. You know, solving racism is not going to heal this land like you think it's going to. But I'm with you in doing it. But, but I, that's just one of the sins. I'm interested in curing all of them. And the only way to do it is, the, is what's happened to me. And that is reconciliation to God through Jesus Christ. Colossians chapter 1, verses 19 through 20, I know. I know. This is the conclusion, I promise. Not the first of several conclusions, just the... Colossians chapter 1, verse 19 through 20. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. By Christ's sacrifice, a new relation of, relationship of reconciliation and peace has been accomplished between God and humanity. The benefit of this work of Christ is unrestricted. It covers every dimension of experience. It extends to all of creation. All things covers everything. In due time, Christ will present the church without spot or wrinkle to the Father and deliver the kingdom to God, and God will be all in all. That is what he's doing to us now. He's washing us clean again and again and again and again, and we will show up on the last day, and we will be perfect and spotless, and he will say, look, here's the church, here's my bride, Beautiful, perfect, white dress and all. Although Christ is only head of the church as prophet and priest and king, all human beings benefit 
from the light that the gospel shines into the world. Right? This is what I've talked about before. If What God wants is to reconcile all things by the blood of his son. At his son's cross, what he wants are, are what? Ambassadors out there, right? You're converted, you're changed, and so therefore you go out and you're what? A Christian policeman and a Christian baker and a Christian doctor and a Christian everything. You go into your home and that's what you're doing. You're reconciling things there. You're dealing with enmity. You go to work and you're dealing with enmity. You go to the you know you go into the world and you're dealing with enmity. You're reconciling and reconciling and reconciling. And even if it do, if everybody isn't converted, isn't everybody better off? The liberation of the created world from the bondage of decay, the glorification of creation, the renewal of heaven and earth, all of this is the fruit of the cross of Christ. And wherever we lift it up, this is what spreads, is reconciliation and peace. True peace. Not the kind of peace the world is looking for. All creation, even the angels, are enfolded into the glorious redemption of all things. The whole creation, one day, it will stand perfect without spot or wrinkle. And God's presence is the work of Christ, the Lord of lords and the King of kings. See, this is what's going to happen at the very end. It's not just going to be the church that's cleansed. It's the world that's going to be cleansed. And, and the world will be reconciled to God the Father because he's going to do away, through his wrath, all of those things that are unclean and imperfect. It's going to stand clean and perfect. But does that mean we just wait until the end? Is our thing, well, God's going to take care of it, so you know what I'm going to do is just be quiet. Because he's, this mob looks angry. No, how do you think he's cleaning it? If it isn't you. If it isn't the way you're loving your spouse. If it isn't the way you're loving your children. If it isn't the reconciling that's going on in your own home, your own workplace, your own communities. That is how he's taking it, step by step by step. Every profession, every family, every nation, every region of the world. Step by step by step. Person by person by person. He reconciles one person to him and then he gets a whole family. Right? Sixteen years ago, when I was a pagan at war with God, there was just me. Now there's eight of us. Amen. I was just, I was bragging about it. I was like, man, if the Lord willing and the creek don't rise, we're going to be planting six homes. Like, I can't even barely get, I mean, resources to plant a single church is almost beyond me. But I'm going to be planting me six homes. Right? And think, right? All that reconciliation that's going to go on through them. This is what he's talking. Go and go and let the message be be reconciled to God. You're reconciled to me. We have peace, and this is what we're about now is this peace and reconciliation. We're going to get into some other aspects of this in the coming weeks, but foundationally, this is what we have to understand. There is not one sin that God hates. He hates all of them. There is not one sinner that he hates. He hates all of them. Now, and we should not sit in here and point the finger out there and say, ha ha, he loves us and hates you. Good luck with that. This is our opportunity to rise up and say, listen, do you people want reconciliation? Why are you focused on just one sin? Let me tell you about the injustices in community, in, in this community, in this nation, by this government. But, 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 I'm telling you, if you need any help, I'll send you a list of 70. Say, so, yeah, the only hope for any one of those is the one man, Jesus Christ. 
who died on a cross, who ascended into heaven with his own blood, is washing his people in that blood to present them perfect on the final day and through them to present the world perfectly to the Father on the final day. And then we boast about that. We don't hide that. We're not ashamed of that. Let them throw rocks. Let them do whatever they're going to do. Because what the church needs right now is boldness. Not this cautionary, like, oh man, those guys seem really upset and I'm awful white. <laughs> I don't know if I could say anything about that. I mean, <laughs> no, how about, man, you guys, you guys seem like you're at war. Seems like there's a war here. And what you should be, what you should have with one another is peace. Don't you know that Jesus? And then boom, there you go. Be those people. The other thing, is don't just talk about it, do it. Who do you need to be reconciled with? It gets me to the point where I'm going to throw something. Who do you need to be reconciled with? Stop talking, stop talking to me about all the white people. Stop talking to me about all the whatever. How about you? Who do you need to be reconciled with? What's the only hope to have reconciliation in that relationship? Right? Okay. And before you do that, because I'm not interested in unleashing jerks on the world, let's all go down. There's a mirror down at the end of the hallway by the bathrooms. Everybody go down there and look in your eyes for a moment. Oh, there's a, there's like a timber forest in there. Okay, well, man, okay. Well, now I need to go get reconciled with God. Then I need to reconcile myself with some folks. And then what people will see in your life is reconciliation, the thing that they're looking for. This is the moment for us to rise up and to be about this. The work, like your wife needs you to be, your husband needs you to be, your friends need you to be, your children need you to be, and I, right, and, and the world needs you to be about this. Amen. Father, we thank you so much for your Son and for His blood. We thank you for turning away your wrath that we so righteous, so rightly deserve. We thank you for having mercy upon us. We thank you for calling us out of the world into fellowship with your Son. We pray, Lord God, that we would boast not in ourselves or anything that we have done or even in anything that we have necessarily received, but that we would boast in Jesus Christ, the giver of the gifts, the reconciler, our peace, our hope, our justification, our righteousness, and the hope of the world. I pray, God, that as we go from here, that we would be reconciled to you, be reconciled to one another, and that we would, Lord God, announce to the world what true reconciliation looks like. And amen.